You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. not only with us, but you're also fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you're fellowshipping with me, you're fellowshipping with the Father. So we have this great time of fellowship. It's a spirit-filled fellowship. Fellowship is so important to the brethren. It's so important to the church as we fellowship together. When we fellowship together, the Lord's presence is felt. And you know, the Holy Spirit comes and we have that iron, sharpening iron as we talk about the Lord and we encourage one another. And you have problems and we hear them and we lead you to God's Word. The church is the fellowship of believers coming together to learn and worship the Father. Pastor Dave shares today that fellowship is vital for several reasons. You'll receive the shepherding of the pastor, encouragement from other believers, and experience the Lord's presence. And here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 21 as he begins his message, The Weakened Church. You are so if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts 21. Acts 21, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 25. So if you will turn there, please. Acts 21, verses 15 through 25. I'll read aloud if you want to follow along silently, please. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous of the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to their customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. As I was researching and studying for this week's message, I sat around and I began to wonder, what happened to the original church in Jerusalem? What happened to it? It began so powerful with the move of the Holy Spirit. It was so spirit-filled, but it seemed to end so abruptly. It seemed to end so quickly. 
I did some digging. I did some looking. And history tells us that the original Jerusalem church lasted for some 40 years. It left the city and went into the dispersion not long before A.D. 70. And although even in the dispersion it continued long to call itself the Church of Jerusalem, it had no direct association with the city of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was reestablished by the Gentiles as a Gentile city in A.D. 135, a new church became. But it was a completely Gentile Christian church and had no continuity with the Church of Jerusalem of the earlier days or the apostolic days. In a book entitled The Church of Jerusalem, the writer F.F. Bruce poses this question. Why did a church which started out with such unprecedented promise come to such an inglorious and ineffective end? Remember when we started the book of Acts? When we started, that seemed like ages ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Um, We started the book of Acts and we saw the birth of the Christian church. The birthday of the Jerusalem church actually was the birthday of the Christian church. They were one in the same. And the best account we have of this is Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, fell upon the disciples, the 120 that were gathered in the upper room, and the church was born. How Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, went out and preached this wonderful and glorious sermon to the crowds that were gathered because they heard the racket, they heard the wind, they saw the tongues of fire, and they heard everyone speaking in different languages, glorifying God. And remember, after this, 3,000 people came to know the Lord, and the church was born. Not only the Christian church, but the church of Jerusalem. They responded, and they received the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then they became incorporated to the same Spirit-filled fellowship that the apostles were enjoying. The apostles enjoyed the Spirit-filling. There was a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What a glorious time. It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that the prophet Joel had prophesied that would come in the end times, remember? It was an outpouring of the Spirit. And this came in the true experience of that time. The church had early distinctives. We talked about the early distinctives of the church. In fact, we studied in length Acts 2.42. It happens to be a scripture that appears on our webpage. It happens to be a scripture that we model our church after. That's no surprise either. Let me read it to you. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayer. The apostles' doctrine was the teaching that the apostles received from Jesus Christ himself. It was the true word of God that they would impart it to others. Because remember, Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I commanded you in the Great Commission in Acts 20, excuse me, in Matthew 28, verse 20. Paul then writes to his young son in the faith, Timothy, who is now pastor of the church of Ephesus, and he says this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The apostles' doctrine is the word of God, and it is just as true today as it was back then. It needs to be taught on a regular basis, because by the word of God, we grow as Christians. Our faith grows, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. And by the word of God, we are changed, and we are mature as Christians. We're given a blueprint on how to live our lives. The word of God is so important to us. And this is what the early church was formed on. By teaching and reading the Word of God, by learning the Word of God, we learn how to weather storms that come and go. We learn how to make it through this life that we've been called to live. We learn how to be witnesses. We learn how to share the love one to another. That's what the Word of God does in our lives. 
First church was built upon the apostles' doctrine. It was built upon the apostles' fellowship. And this carries with it a fellowship not only with the apostles. Remember, John says, you're fellowshipping not only with us, but you're also fellowshipping with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you're fellowshipping with me, you're fellowshipping with the Father. So we have this great time of fellowship. It's a spirit-filled fellowship. Fellowship is so important to the brethren. It's so important to the church as we fellowship together. When we fellowship together, the Lord's presence is felt. And you know, the Holy Spirit comes and we have that iron, sharpening iron as we talk about the Lord and we encourage one another. And you have problems and we hear them and we lead you to God's word. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Fellowship is so important to the church, so important to the believer, so important to the Christian life. The breaking of bread. Now, we looked at the breaking of bread in two different meanings. The early church broke bread daily. They ate. They ate meals together. And that was the breaking of bread. But also, at the end of every meal, they celebrated communion. This was also the breaking of the bread. Because remember, when Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it out. The breaking of bread. This is so important. This is one of the several Several things that Jesus gave us to do, baptism and communion. And we want to do those as often as possible until he comes back. And then, of course, there's prayer. Prayer is that occasions when they got together and they prayed for boldness. They prayed for each other. We read through the book of Acts how their bold praying got Peter out of jail. Their bold praying, they became bigger witnesses than ever. And the word of God continually spread from their boldness and their prayer. So you see these things all working together. We pray as a church regularly on Wednesday nights. We pray regularly on Sunday evenings. We've seen miraculous things happen by prayer. Each one of the people that have been involved in our prayers can tell you of miraculous things that have happened in their lives because of the prayer that we've lifted up to God and He's heard our cries. This building that you sit in, I've said a million times, is a result of that prayer. It's a result of God's faithfulness to us. So prayer is huge. But sadly, the picture we have of the early church, of that first Jerusalem church, when they were practicing the sharing of goods one to the other, they had gladness, they had boldness when they shared the gospel message, they spontaneously praised God, and they had favor with all people. It's a lot different from the picture we now have 20-some-odd years later, which is where we are in the book of Acts. We're about 20 to 30 years later. And the leaders describe that the bulk of them are zealous for the law. It's a far cry from the church that once began, filled with the Holy Spirit, now all of them are zealous for the law. It says that they, they viewed with suspicion the progress of the Gentile mission. They had suspicion on the Gentiles because of their prejudices. And although it was the mother church of the Christian world, its contribution to the gospel throughout the world in its later years was so much smaller than you might think. Very, very sad. Very sad. Bruce again says this and asks this question. What lessons can we take from the Jerusalem church's downslide and Give them to the churches today. He continues, We shall certainly learn nothing from the Jerusalem Christians if we sit in judgment on them from our detached vantage point enjoying all the benefits of hindsight. But 
if we try to sympathize with them in their situation, we may more easily see how they went wrong and be preserved from our own mistakes. And that's where we're going today. Back to the quandary of what happened to the church of Jerusalem. Well, in our text today, I see four things that I think led to the downfall, or at least the beginning of the downfall of the church in Jerusalem from the scriptures we read. I see these four things. I see legalism. I see gossip and rumors. I see compromise. And I see prejudice. Now, this is not an all-inclusive list, trust me. I'm sure there were many, 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 many other things that led to the downfall of the church in Jerusalem, but these are the things I see today in our Scriptures. But just as Bruce said, we need to take note of these events and look at them with a sympathetic heart, knowing that we could just as easily slide into a weakened position just as the church in Jerusalem did back then. We need to be ever conscious and aware of where we are. I mean, even during communion, I ask you to examine yourself, to see where you are in the faith. Who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Have things crept in? Has there been legalism that's crept into your life? Have you participated in gossip? Is there a compromise in your life? Or is there a prejudice in your life? These things destroy churches. These things will rip a church apart from limb to limb, and they destroy better churches than you've seen. We need to look at this and take this seriously. Church is a serious business when you're honoring God and trying to get the gospel message out. So that's what I kind of see today, and that's kind of like where we're going. We begin, we look in verse 15, it says, After those days we packed up and went to Jerusalem. Paul is escorted to Jerusalem, not only by his traveling companions, but he's also picking up disciples along the way. It's like, you know, the Pied Piper of Paul. He kind of walks down there and all these people want to follow him into Jerusalem. It's pretty neat that he has all these guys sometimes because he can get in some pretty serious trouble. But he picks up these disciples along the way, and in verse 16, we find the name of some of them. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Luke makes mention of this early disciple named Manasin. I guess that's how you pronounce it. We don't know anything about him except his name. I mean, was he at Pentecost? Was he in the upper room with the 120? Was he saved after Peter's first message? We don't have no idea about him. And there's not much said. But we do know he had the gift of hospitality because he had all of Paul and his traveling companions stay with them. So he was a spirit-filled saint. Kind of wait to meet him. So Paul and his friends get to Jerusalem, and they're immediately greeted by the brethren, it says. And they were received gladly. I like that. It says, and when they come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The Greek translation here means that when Paul got there, his group was greeted with pleasure. In other words, they were happy to see them. Or were they? Film at 11. There must have been an excitement in the city that day. Because remember, it's around the time of Passover. And at the time of Passover, Jerusalem swelled to over 2 million people as everybody came and pilgrimed to Jerusalem for the sacrifice and for the Passover supper. It was a time of great, great many people. Paul and his group go into the city and they immediately go to the brethren and they're greeted and they have a wonderful time of fellowship. It certainly was and definitely an exciting time. I'm sure Paul was saying, this is great. I'm here with my brothers in Jerusalem. This is where I wanted to go. Lord, what do you have in store? I don't know if the Lord told him or not, but he already knew that what was in store was not good. But Paul gets down to business, and then the very next day, he goes and sees James 
and the elders. Now, James, remember, is the brother of Jesus. This is not James Zebedee who lost his head way back in the beginning of Acts. This is not John's brother, James. This is Jesus' brother, James, who has assumed the responsibility for the Christian church in Jerusalem. He's now like the chief person. It says, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. At this meeting, Paul tells James and the elders all that had happened in the last missionary journey. This description of R. Kent Hughes writes this. Paul shared the amazing things God had done among the Gentiles, the Ephesian riots that came about because of the social impact of the gospel, the power of the gospel in Athens and Corinth, the apostles escaping the would-be assassins, poor Eutychus' swan dive and miraculous recitation during Paul's sermon in Troas. Remember all those fun times that we studied? It was great. Paul even takes with him, if we remember, if you look back in the book of Acts, Paul even takes with him Gentile believers as proof of what the Lord is doing in the Gentile nation. They're there with them. But Luke seems to leave something out. Luke left something out, and I wonder why Luke left this out. We can only surmise. He left out a very, very important thing. Remember one of the reasons why Paul went to Jerusalem in the first place? To deliver the offering? He was going to give this offering that he took among the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem. And he wanted to do that. He wanted to get there. You can read all about that in Romans 15. Paul talks about how he wanted to go there and how he hoped it wouldn't be rejected. Luke doesn't even make mention of that. Why? There's nothing written about the response. to. Did he give it to him? Sure he did. Were they suspicious of the offering? Were they worried about the offering? Did the prejudice come in too badly? Like, oh, it's from Gentiles? Or had the legalists in there placed too much pressure on the leadership of the church? I don't know. Doesn't say. But James and the elders hear everything that Paul has to say about the Lord and how he's working mightily in the Gentile churches. And what do they do? They do the best thing. They glorify God. They glorify the Lord. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. This is great. All's going well. The apostle Paul must have been ecstatic, thinking to himself, this is really a good thought. Hold that thought a moment, Paul. Don't be quick with the high fives. Hold on. Immediately, The nature of the meeting takes a turn. It shifts completely. The elders and James say to Paul, Paul, we got some good news and we got some bad news. And here it is. The church of Jerusalem had been weakened. And in a weakened state, it begins to show itself first through legalism. The first sign we see is legalism within the body of believers. There's several things worth mentioning here before we continue. Number one is most commentators believe that these elders that are being talked about, there were 70 of them, and they were there, and they were in like the Sanhedrin. Remember the legalistic Sanhedrin? They're they're alike in this group of elders to the Sanhedrin, which was a very legalistic group. That's one thing. And secondly... We saw in Acts 15 during the Jerusalem Council that there is a radical legalistic wing of the church. We saw that. The Judaizers, remember? We saw that. And they're still there too. So we want to set that up. But the number must have been coming up because look what it says in verse 20b. And they say to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So, Brother Paul, the good news is there's myriads of Jews who believe. Myriads basically means tens of thousands. 
That's the good news. Woohoo! Tens of thousands of people believe. That's great, Paul. But the bad news is they're all zealous for the law. Excuse me? Wait a minute. Hold on. They're, they're zealous for the law? Now, by this time in Jerusalem, there were thousands upon thousands of Christians, but there were mainly Jews. And they were a really weird mixture of Christianity and Judaism. They were zealous for the law. They were continuing in the rites of Judaism, and they were continuing the law of Moses. They believed in Jesus was their Savior, but they had accommodated themselves to the Jewish community. One commentator said this, the statement, all of them are zealous for the law, is in effect saying, we are saved by grace, but we are kept saved by the working of the law. Ooh, Paul, scratching his head. Did he look back at them? Hey, guys, didn't you read my letter to the Galatians? Well, maybe you didn't. Did you read my letter to the Roman church? What are you doing here? Zealous for the law? But obviously they had not. But even if they had, you know, old habits are hard to break. You know, many today hold on a legalistic view of Christianity. They hold on to that legalistic view. It's always Christ plus something else. They put you under a yoke and bondage that nobody can, can do. Some of them even call themselves fruit inspectors, and they go around looking for how bad you are and how poorly you did that day so they can point it out. But if those of you here Wednesday night, you know that they didn't clear the plank out of their own eye when they looked at the speck in your eye. These legalists, they want to put you under the law and hold you there. Many believe that it was legalism that started to weaken the Christian church, and I believe that. I believe that, and legalism is still weakening the Christian church today. It's a bad, strange thing. Legalism is just strict conformity to the doctrine of the law. Now, the law is good, we learned that, if it's used properly and used correctly. But it's the mindset of Jesus plus something else. I mean, it's great to have Jesus and all, but you know what? You really need the law. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. See, Paul had discovered God's grace. Paul had discovered God's beautiful grace. And that's one thing the church in Jerusalem obviously didn't discover. They were still trying to please God by the adherence to the law rather than to attaining a righteousness which is by faith in Jesus Christ, which Paul wrote to the Roman church. Paul said, what about it, guys? It's just this. The Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge because they're ignorant of the righteousness that God has provided. And being ignorant of that righteousness, they're going about trying to establish their own righteousness, trying to make themselves righteous before God as if you want to get right with God, if you want to have a great relationship with God, you've got to read your word two hours a day, you've got to read six or seven chapters, and you've got to pray for another hour. If you do that, you're going to have a great day. I don't know about you, but I have done half of that and hadn't had a very good day. But see, you can place that now as a law, and I can put you under that, and then you think you're going to have to do something to make God love you better than he does now. I have some sad news, gang. God will never love you more than he loves you right now. He will never love you more than he loves you right now because he gave his son to die for you while you were sinning. You are When Jesus left earth following his resurrection, his followers weren't sure what was next. They had instructions from their Lord and Savior, but not much else. However, they chose to trust that what Jesus said was true and was going to change their lives. It did. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to minister to the world in ways they'd never have been able to do on their own. Is Jesus asking you to follow his instructions today? 
Maybe he's only given you a piece of the journey, or maybe he's asking you to wait. Take a cue today from the members of the early church. Trust Jesus to come through with his promises and change your life. We're so glad you tuned in to Assure Hope. We'd like to hear from you and learn how we can be praying for you. So please give us a call. Our number is 609-884-5821. If you'd like to hear more messages from this series in the book of Acts, you'll find them at assurehoperadio.com. There are several teachings on various books of the Bible available online for download. And we encourage you to share them with your friends and family. You can also receive a CD copy of today's message by calling us. Again, our number is 609-884-5821. That's all we have time for today. We're so glad we can share God's Word with you through this ministry. Pastor Dave will have more to share from this verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Acts. So we hope you'll join us again right here on A Sure Hope.